Welcome to Ladywood, the podcast in which two huge fans of Deadwood and one newbie are discussing the show through a feminist lens. I'm Lynn Sternberger, and I'm a TV writer in L.A. I'm Brandi Sperry, also a writer here in the City of Angels. I'm Stita Sean, a stand-up comedian and writer in Los Angeles. Yeah, I said it just to mix things up, guys. It's great. It's going to get so crazy on the podcast today. We only have <laughs> like three more of these to do. So how many times can we uh, say we live in Los Angeles? I, a lot we'll of find times. Out. I'm, I'm proud to live in Los Angeles. <laughs> Should we just break out into City of Stars, City of Lights? <laughs> yeah, totally. Are you shining bright for Just alienate with a few listeners we have. <laughs> That'll be the thing to breach them. There's three episodes from the end, and they're like, they tried to sing. <laughs> this is where traditionally you'd stick in the musical episode, right? Like end of season three. Yeah, guys, amateur night. I mean, it's the perfect time. Yeah. So. I really, I, I wish I had warmed up a little before breaking <laughs> in. Um, today we are discussing the ninth, the ninth episode of the third season. It is indeed called Amateur Night, uh, written by Nick Town and Zach Whedon and directed by Adam Davidson. This first aired August 6, 2006. And in the episode, Langrish welcomes all comers for the camp's first amateur night as his theater finally opens. A returning Commissioner Jari seeks an audience with Hearst regarding the coming elections as Hearst orders violence against Merrick. And Aunt Lou receives distressing news about her son, which is, let's say, an understatement. (laughs) Distressing news. The most distressing news. The most devastating news. The cold open had so little to do with everything else. I'm I'm a little confused about this episode. It felt like a a mixed bag. So we we open with... The Earp brothers having had some fun with some prostitutes at the Bella Union. And then there's a whole thing with them and their timber lease and all their gunfight misadventures. And then we also have this storyline where all of a sudden Odell is dead off screen. And both of those feel a piece with some storytelling issues I have in season three where these storylines just happen but don't ever explain why they happened basically (laughs) you totally nailed it these two storylines in particular I just found myself wondering why I don't know exactly why they've decided to murder Odell unless the reasoning is uh we're going to change his mother's situation like Aunt Lou is finally going to be broken and going to turn against Hearst if that's the case I want to see it and so far it's just her hating him, but, but continuing to do her job. Um, so, and then the herbs, it's like here and gone. Yeah. Was the idea to try them out and see if they worked. And then they didn't. I don't know. The herbs are super disappointing because you've got like a famous gunslinger coming into Deadwood where there's a lot of gunslinging and they then they don't gunsling and then they're working at Timberlees. It just feels like a huge opportunity that's lost. And like one small nitpicky thing I have with the the show is that when the two Earp brothers woke up, they had like the hottest prostitutes from the Bella Union. <laughs> and my my beef with that is that <laughs> why did they have like traditionally like I don't know modern day hot prostitutes? Like this is like the 1800s. Shouldn't the Earp brothers have been with like I don't know kind of curvier women because back then it was kind of like it was more fashionable to be curvier, you know, like because that meant prosperity and all that stuff so it, it just kind of like played to like a traditional sort of attractiveness thing and I was like I thought it could have been a more interesting choice if they had placed like the Earp brothers with you know plumper prostitutes 
That's I just love a this take for me. <laughs> this is like a hot take, Sita. You're like, um, my problem is not with the story. It is with the voluptuousness of the whores. Uh, it feels historically inaccurate. <laughs> it does. It could have been so interesting to me because I think part of what is interesting about Charlie Utter and Jane and their like unmoredness and even while Bill, while he was there, is like, once you're past your gunslinging days, what the fuck do you do with yourself, right? So seeing that with these younger famous guys could have been really interesting. But instead, they just get into one ill-advised gunfight, one shot, because some dude is taunting Morgan in a way that I didn't even really understand. Did they know each other or did they just like eye each other it's, on the street and decide, unexplained. I don't it's, like the look of you? Like, yeah, I think that's what it was. And it's a, it's a bunch of gay jokes, a bunch of dick jokes. A bunch of Jewish jokes, too, I think, the way he's oh. calling him Hiram. Yep. Mm. I mean, it just feels like a missed opportunity because I don't know the actor who plays Morgan very well. But, I mean, the actor who plays Wyatt is a, a pretty powerful actor. I mean, at least he's very charismatic. And we don't really get to see any of that play out. At least Seth and Saul got some kindling out of all of their trouble. Yeah. <laughs> What, what were they calling it? Like like dick timbers? I forget. They were Pecker like, poles. it's all little. Pecker poles. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a great indie band name. It sounds like a terrible indie band name. <laughs> that like Vincent Gallo would have been in in the early 2000s. Okay. Oh well, my God. I'm not, I'm not inviting you to our show then. <laughs> Everything you see on stage is real. <laughs> Let's talk about other characters that we didn't know we needed back. Commissioner Jerry. Jari. Everybody in the world is still undecided about how to say it. So, I mean, this seemed like it got a lot of airtime, but ultimately it's just him trying to convince Hearst to buy votes in the upcoming election. Or uh, assuring him that previously bought votes are in place and needing a letter to the governor or, you know, it's a little opaque as things are. Right. But it does give us the single weirdest moment of Deadwood. At least that's it's my nomination for the weirdest <laughs> moment ever, which is the bird impersonation that he <laughs> oh God, yes. doing. You think Steven Tobolowski was like, I'm just going to riff. Maybe. Like he just kept going, like no one called cut and he just kept going. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love it if that's actually what happened. <laughs> It's also uh, it's also Zach Whedon uh, writing half of this episode, and he is part of the Whedon clan. That is like Joss Whedon and everybody else. I can sort of see him translating from like a weird Joss Whedon point of view. I mean, that feels like very comedic. It was just like really baldly comedic in the middle of like an episode that was kind of lighthearted, but not that lighthearted. I felt bad for Lou, honestly, having to listen to this fucking nonsense while she's mourning her son and dreaming of slicing Hearst's throat mm-hmm. while she's chopping potatoes. Jerry, Jerry also has a conversation with Saul Adams at the gym. Um, Silas? With, with Silas, yeah, sorry, not Saul, Silas Adams, I meant to say that. So basically, it was that Washington is fixated on Yankton now because there's some scandal with the money going to the Indian agents. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes. And then... And it's pretty clear that Jari's has actually been stealing the money from the government. And so so it seems like Jari wants some sort of distraction or wants to create some sort of distraction to Washington so that he can continue stealing money. But he's telling 
Silas Adams, I'm assuming, as a way to engage Al Swerdin in the scheme as well. Yeah, it seems like Jari still is just trying to curry favor with every powerful man who might end up on top, whether they be government or commerce or outlaw. But yeah, I don't know what what we're supposed to think about what was happening with his embezzlement scheme. I assume the money was meant to be procuring lands from the Native Americans and was not going to that. That's what I gleaned from the conversation. It seems unimportant, ultimately. Like, it's one of those big picture questions that it, it exists within the world of Deadwood, but has very little bearing on actually the things that we're following with our main characters. Yeah. So... Yeah, he's back. I, I wanted to go back very uh, briefly and at least mention this scene between Aunt Lou and Richardson because I love it when they have characters that haven't previously interacted interact. And I had been wondering, like, how are they sharing that kitchen? And then we see that actually they make a very good sous chefs for one another. <laughs> and uh, Richardson provides, much as he defended Alma with that weird horn... He provides comfort to Aunt Lou in her moment of need. It was sweet. I liked it. It makes me really like her, too, because she's patient with him in a way that others aren't. She's teaching him all the steps of how to cure a really good ham. And we get a few comments about how much better the food is now, and people are so pleased Mm -hmm. about it. It's like Richardson would have done his best all along if someone could have just shown him. Yeah. He doesn't have YouTube videos to, like, study, guys. (laughs) He doesn't know. But yeah, I mean, this whole sequence with Aunt Lou does make me wish that she was just going to, you know, knife Hearst. Unfortunately, we know that he's going to be in the movie. So if she attempts (laughs) that, it it will be a failed attempt. But I kind of hope she tries at least. There there could have been poison in that there ham is all I'm saying. (laughs) Not over my poison idea. In a totally uh, separate storyline, there's this whole thing with the schoolhouse is now ready to be opened. And so the town, kind of like how they gathered with the bicycle thing, has assembled to watch the promenade of the children from the old whorehouse to the new schoolhouse. And everybody is kind of getting pulled into this processional. Martha, of course, leading it. And Joni feels some sort of way about it, kind of touched. And then Mose pulls Jane out of a literal pile of bottles. She is super, super shit-faced. And then she drunkenly stumbles. I, I got to say, this is some of my favorite acting from Robin Weigert, is watching her try to like hold it together in this parade of children. This whole thing definitely reminds us that it's a little weird to be having this like wholesome schoolhouse in what is still a bit of an outlaw town, right? Because it's like... How many chaperones do they need to just walk down the street? Oh, I thought it, I thought it was like a point of pride thing for the city where they're like, look, we have children. That means we're booming. I guess. And then part of me was also like, you know, I used to work at the Boys and Girls Club and we would have to have two at the front, two at the back and people counting the kids the whole way to make sure one didn't wander off. I was like, is that what the situation is? Maybe that's partly it. Although I feel like kids were um, more... What's sort of looking for? They were a little less helicoptered in those days. <laughs> yeah, or I was going to say they actually just listened to their elders more because there there was such a sort of strict code of respect that maybe can you know kids that's not really like the way that the majority of families are structured anymore. Hmm. 
but maybe you're right. Maybe it is a little more of a bicycle race moment where everyone's just like, this is the main event in town this day. But it's not really. There's like two main events, right? So we've got the promenade and then we have amateur night. Okay, guys, here's a, here's a question for you. Why? <laughs> I mean, since language has gotten to town, I've been asking that question like every time he's in the scene because he's really, you know, he's eloquent and he's a fun, flamboyant character, but I just don't see how he connects the thread with anybody else in town. He's like, every time the troupe is there, it's kind of, it kind of feels like they're in their own show. Definitely. I mean, he's based off a real historical character as the Earps are, and I do think that Deadwood sometimes falls into this trap where they just kind of want to include as much as they can of the historical characters. But in particular, it bothered me in this episode because all of a sudden Langridge is going around telling everyone about Amateur Night, and he makes three or four separate sexual harassy comments to female characters. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? Like... Would this be your least feminist montage? Yeah, but but it's also like confusing to me because, I mean, he seems to all of a sudden be being played as like a little bit of a lecherous straight guy, which isn't yeah, the vibe that we had previously weird. been getting from him at all. Super weird. I agree with you, Brandy. I was like, I was just going to say that I, it feels like he was gay and possibly in a polyamorous love triangle with the other male <laughs> actors in his troupe. And I don't know like where any of this is coming from, any of the sexual subplots amongst the the troop members. No idea. I mean, it is kind of fun to watch the actual amateur night sequence. Although honestly, the first time through, it was a little stressful for me. Like it's all over the place. And I just felt like, like at one point, like people start like drumming and it sounded very ominous. <laughs> and I was like, is something really terrible going to happen at amateur night? Like there was just a little bit of an, anything could happen kind of vibe that I mean they just they get through it it's okay I mean when the bicycle thing happened that was the the death of Seth's son so right so I mean I feel like I was waiting for like a fire to break out or uh, something really awful to happen that would have been exciting I I think (laughs) my problem more with Langrish is not the sexual harassment although that's not ideal uh it's that we spend so much time with this theater troupe meanwhile Trixie is back at the bank making a deposit. Alma has gotten clean and that's it. That's like the entirety of their scene. And I'm like, why is this a minor subplot? Yeah, Alma doesn't apologize. Trixie doesn't say anything about getting her job back. She just sees that her eyes look clear and then she's like, I trust the lady. (laughs) I'm like, she treated you so badly. Like, can we get a real conversation between these two, please? And how did Alma get clean exactly? I mean, I know that she doesn't have her supplier anymore, but it's not like just overnight, bam, you're clean. Who helped her? Yeah, we saw her detox the first time and it was pretty tough. I mean, she was basically shut up in her room for, I think it was weeks while Trixie attended her. And if nobody was helping her, I don't know how she did it on her own. Yeah, Uh, this is a huge plot hole for me. And uh, if I was able to redistribute this episode, this would be in the place of, I mean, take your pick, the Earps or Amateur Night. I mean, Amateur Night, I just hope that it's setting up something big because it's like a huge event. Almost everyone in town is there. There's the guy who can like cry at will and they like devote (laughs) 
scenes <laughs> to him crying at will. You know, it's just like, what is this? I, I kept waiting for it to lead somewhere because Al's kind of been impotent this episode too. And during amateur night, you can see that he's really pissed off because everybody emptied out of the gem to go to a- amateur night. And it's like the, one of the few times where we see Al in the saloon and he's alone and he's like mm-hmm. cleaning up, which is like, mm-hmm. what? I've never seen him clean anything other than a blood stain. but you know. <laughs> I loved the end of this. Because I was like, it did lead to something big. It led to Al singing. (laughs) Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And I do think while he hates that the gem has cleared out, I think part of it is a throwback to something else. Like something in his past. Like he's mentioned before that he used to go to these amateur nights. And Mm. I just feel like there was a deeper moment there. Like he wished that he was in a place where he could participate Mm -hmm. in something like this. But he never can again if he wants to keep his position as like being above all of that. It did feel like he was performing his own act, but just on his own. Yes. Like he wished he could. I don't know. I thought it was great. Well, I like your take on it. Yeah, I like that take. He also seems like super drunk in that scene. Just so just a jolly singing drunk guy. I don't know if I would go jolly. Not that far. (laughs) Uh, oh, and of mention, General Fields is still caretaking for Steve. Early in the episode, he parks him at the pub and, like, drops a bunch of money so they can basically babysit him. But then later, we see him kind of as his caretaker at the amateur night, parked with him, like, taken in the show. Steve is looking much worse for wear. I'm just like, why is the general sticking around? He can't possibly feel kindly toward this guy now. He's having like a lot of ambivalence about his duty as like almost like a a stand-in for Hofstetter because he spends like a really long time at the bank sort of having a one-sided argument with Alma about delivery and about what responsibilities are left for delivery. Mm -hmm. And Alma keeps reassuring him that, you know, there's nothing left for him to do. It's totally fine for him to leave. And even after he sort of declares himself like free of responsibilities, we see that he's still with Steve. So there's there's something there where both I think both Hofstetter and General Fields actually have an enormous amount of guilt towards like a life taken, even though it wasn't anywhere near their fault. With with Hofstetter, it was the horse that ran away with Fields. It was the horse that killed Steve. So they're all linked to these basically horse murders, which is what it is. Horse homicides, I guess. <laughs> oh my God. I just like had an image of like Sita Sean and the the case of the horse murders. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was a three-year-old gelding. <laughs> God help me live a life where if I'm kicked in the head by a horse and dying, people aren't completely indifferent to it. I think you're better liked than Steve. I'm just gonna so. put it out there. <laughs> Does anybody have nominations for favorite quotes, most or least feminist moments? Brandy already had the least feminist um, sexual harassment situation. Well, for favorite moments, we didn't talk about um, the evolution of Wu and his communication through drawings. I love Johnny being able to figure it out, too, and earning him a punch in the face. (laughs) (laughs) I love that scene, too. It was great. Poor Johnny. Poor, poor Johnny. He definitely didn't deserve a punch in the face. I feel like Al's been punctuating things with a punch in the face a lot lately and people are just dealing with it. But at some point, there's got to be a time when they might say, I don't think that deserved a punch in the face. I'm just trying to be helpful. 
And he was legitimately helpful in that moment. Yeah. I also realized that at amateur night, he was hanging out with that prostitute that he's teaching to read. And I was like, is this a little love story? Oh, yeah. Johnny and Jen. That's totally a little love story on this side. It's very it's very cute if she wasn't basically in like indentured sexual servitude. (laughs) (laughs) Besides that, though. But besides that. Um, And then we also have to watch your baby Merrick get the shit kicked out of him in this episode. Yeah. He didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve any of it. Poor, poor Merrick. Didn't he get hit before? Am I making that up? And Al was like, man up. I think Al punched him. (laughs) Yeah, Al punched him. (laughs) Al was like, this is a lesson you need to learn. You know, well, I actually guess we're seeing dividends to that lesson. I guess. And Blazanov is so sorry. I don't know. I I just always like the little moments with Blazanov. He's a weird favorite for me. It's very Bernie inert. Bert and Ernie. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes. Why does it's it very sound Bert. so weird to say Ernie and Bert instead of Bert and Ernie? Oh my I, don't gosh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I definitely managed to butcher that. But you uh, can get top billing sometime. It's okay. <laughs> um, and yeah, and I guess this this is what breaks Blazanov because he's completely given up on keeping any of her telegrams confidential and he just delivers them to Al. He had it at the ready. Like, he, there's no denying it anymore. Yeah, I just feel like this episode had like so many storylines running through it. I just realized that this is also the episode where the Pinkertons are, you know, firmly in town. They start causing havoc. There's the first beating with Merrick, which... Hearst authorizes because Merrick wrote something mean in the newspaper about him, which like mm-hmm. kind of makes George, George Hearst like the Regina George of Deadwood. You know, he's just like out for petty revenge. Yeah. And then um, there's the other incident, which is the shooting from one of the Pinkertons to Morgan. And that's when Seth actually arrests one of the guys. So Seth, again, pulls somebody by the ear, definitely favorite Seth move, and then throws him in jail. And then they kind of work the guy over, but it doesn't go beyond that. And they let him go before uh, amateur night actually starts. So like that, again, feels like a storyline that was very, um, I don't know, impotent. It didn't it didn't yes. do it. Well, I have to assume that that guy's going to come keep coming back. And I don't know if we ever even hear what his name is out loud. I think the subtitles say that it's like Barrett or something like that. I don't know. The new mm-hmm. Captain Turner who speaks mm-hmm. a lot more. Than the old Captain Turner. And then there's another weird moment where uh, in Alma's recovery, she does the old like coin behind the ear trick that her dad did with Sophia. And I'm like, please, God, tell me this is not portending that that guy's coming back too. we can't handle it. It's too much going on right now. Too many horrible old men. Yeah. uh, Most of all. Also, one thing we did not mention again, there's just it's like it's like a grab bag of plot in this episode is mm-hmm. the whole Cy, Joni, I don't, I'm loath to call it a confrontation. It's kind of just them catching up with tension. And uh, Jane gets scared off and runs away to get Moe's, who comes with a big stick to defend Joni. <laughs> I don't know. It just, I guess it draws Jane and Joni a little closer. The only thing I really like about this sequence is at the end when Joni's like, go along, and Sai like pauses, then he's like, I've got fucking places to go. No, you don't. <laughs> no, yeah. you know, like this guy is now useless now. And I think like the, that line I really liked in that context because it just illuminated how, yeah, I mean, we've used the word impotent a lot, but if the shoe fits, I, I, that's that's what he is right now. 
I love it. This episode is all about impotent men. There we go. <laughs> That's the through line. That's the through line. We are in the home stretch. We've only got a couple more episodes left. And uh, I'm curious to see how things with Hearst come to a head. It seems like a simmer right now. Mm-hmm. Till then, you can find us on Twitter at Ladywoodcast. I'm also at Lynn Sternberger. You can find me at Wee Brandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. And you can find me at Slowbear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. Thanks so much for listening. 